We open the Holy Scriptures to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This chapter was selected as the theme passage for this year's family visitation. So we'll read the whole chapter together and the sermon this morning is going to focus on the chapter as a whole rather than a particular verse, so the entire chapter will be the text. Let us hear the word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, From such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laded with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. Here we end our reading. Of the sacred scriptures. Beloved in the Lord, Paul wrote the epistle of 2 Timothy from prison. It was one of his later epistles, which he wrote as he looked ahead towards his coming trial, his death, and the conclusion of his earthly ministry. He had fought the good fight, and he had finished the course which the Lord gave him to run. And the apostle was ready to depart and to be with Christ, which is far 
better. And yet, we see in the passage which we read and throughout 2 Timothy, that the Apostle's heartfelt concern was for the fledgling New Testament church that had so quickly spread from Jerusalem to Asia Minor, where the Apostle Paul had performed many of his missionary labors. His concern was with that church militant still in the world. And now in 2 Timothy, we see his concern particularly for his spiritual son, the young pastor Timothy, who was laboring in the church of Ephesus at this time. Timothy, who was a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and who followed in the footsteps of his teacher and mentor, Paul. Paul writes this very personal and this very powerful epistle in order to give instruction and encouragement to Timothy and also to the church and the church of all ages. Instruction and encouragement to remain faithful and to stand firm in the face of the manifold hardships, afflictions, and persecutions which necessarily come upon the church as she lives in the last days. The epistle of 2 Timothy is a warm epistle that is full of the pastoral love of the apostle for the church. And it is in that pastoral love that he warns Timothy in the church of the perils, of the dangers that she will face. The dangers of false teachers, the dangers of the spirit of the age, the dangers of ungodliness and vain philosophy, all of which press to creep into the church, and all of which can emerge from within the church on account of the fact that our sinful natures, and the sinful natures of the members of the church, are no different than the natures of the people of the world. In love, Paul exhorts Timothy and the church, stay faithful, stand firm in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he points them Again, to the scriptures, that word of truth, that powerful word of God, which is the means by which we stand. The consistory selected this passage to be the, the theme of this year's family visitation. And there were several reasons for selecting this passage. One is that the apostles' heartfelt love for Timothy and the congregation is a good expression of your consistory's heartfelt love for you as a congregation. It's the heartfelt desire of the consistory that this season of family visitation bind us together and build us up in our most holy faith, but also in true Christian love for one another. But another reason is that this passage is so very relevant to us. It's relevant for the church throughout all ages, but as we progress through the last days, this passage brings to us a word that is so important to hear and is instructive and encouraging for us as Christian families. We need to be encouraged and strengthened to stay faithful and to stand firm in perilous times such as the day in which we live. When our society is growing more and more anti-Christian and the assaults come so much more regularly, and in so many subtle ways, the Christian home is under attack. 
But it's not only dangers from the outside, there's dangers from the inside because sin is found within the church as well. There's the danger of formalism. There's the danger of religion that is merely external. Religion that has the form of godliness but denies the power thereof. There is the danger of self-love which is so promoted in our culture, which appeals to our sinful nature, and which can be found in gross forms in the church. We need to be instructed and encouraged and equipped to stand fast as Christian families in the midst of an evil age. And so it is to that intent that we have our family visitation sermon on this passage with the prayer that our families may be built up and strengthened to stay faithful in this day and in the circumstances of the here and now, where God has placed us. So let's consider together 2 Timothy chapter 3, the chapter as a whole. And we'll take as our theme, staying faithful in perilous times. Perilous times is that phrase we find right at the beginning of this chapter. First, we're going to look at when. We're going to look at what these perilous times are. Secondly, what. What is our calling as we live in the midst of perilous times? And particularly, what is our calling as families? And finally, how? Here the idea is, what God-given means do we have by which we are strengthened to stand fast and stay faithful in perilous times? When, what, how? The Apostle begins, chapter 3, with this word to Timothy and to the church of all ages, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. The last days, as mentioned here, refer not only to the final days of time in history, those final days before Jesus' second coming, That's often what we think of when we think of the last days. We think of the days in which Antichrist will rise and build his short-lived one world kingdom. We think of the days of the great tribulation when Antichrist will persecute the church fiercely, unlike ever before. But the last days in the scripture is a broader term referring to the final era of history which has been ushered in by the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. The last days refer to the entire New Testament age. Biblically speaking, history can be, defi- can be divided into two great eras. There is the Old Testament or Old Dispensation, the age of promise from The beginning all the way to the coming of Christ. And the first coming of Christ is really the transition point, the fulcrum of time and history. And our Lord's ministry and the completion of our Lord's ministry ushered in the last days. The New Testament age or the new dispensation. Which spans from our Lord's ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit and Pentecost to the day of his second coming. And these last days, the New Testament age is stamped with the Great Commission. During the last days, the ascended Jesus Christ is working by his word and spirit through the preaching of the gospel to gather his Catholic church, to gather his lost sheep into one fold 
And once they are gathered, he shall return to judge all moral, rational creatures and to inaugurate the everlasting state. The last days, therefore, are the days in which we are living right now. One Bible passage that shows very clearly that this is what the Bible often means by this term, last days, is Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, we find that God spoke to the fathers in time past by the prophets. But then in verse 2 we read that God hath in these last days, Days spoken unto us by his Son. These last days, the New Testament age, ushered in by the ministry and finished work of Jesus Christ. Further indication that Paul's use of the term last days here in 2 Timothy 3, further indication that he is referring to the whole New Testament age, can be found in verse 5. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, after Paul speaks about these last days and speaks about the people that live in these last days, at the end of verse 5, he exhorts Timothy and the church from such turn away. And that indicates that the Apostle Paul sees these last days as a present reality and the dangers, the threats of these last days to be something that the church needs to be called presently to beware of. To stand firm against. The text is talking about the here and now. The last days are here and now. But now the apostle goes on to state in verse 1. That in the last days perilous times shall come. The idea is that throughout the New Testament age. From Christ's ascension to his second coming. Throughout this New Testament age, there are going to be times of particular peril that emerge and recur over and over again. The New Testament age will be punctuated with perilous times. These perilous times are seasons of great hardship and danger for the church. That's the The meaning of that phrase, perilous times. The word perilous here literally means difficult, harsh, grievous. And the word times refers to a definite period of time. In the New Testament, there are two words for time. One word refers to the the flow of time. And the second word refers to a defined period of time. And that's the word we have here. So what the text is teaching us is that throughout the New Testament age, there will be particular periods of intense peril, grievous seasons for the church. Of course, the entire trajectory of the last days is more frequent troubles and more intense troubles for the church. But throughout the whole New Testament age, there will be these perilous times. And so, if Paul and Timothy lived in the last days, back hundreds of years ago. How much more is this passage applicable and pointedly relevant to us? We live in these last days in which perilous times shall come and are here. Well, let's now look a little more closely 
at what these perilous times are. These perilous times which shall recur, which shall punctuate the entirety of the New Testament age. Paul, in verses 2 through 5, describes what these perilous times will be like. Of what their peril will consist. That which makes these times especially difficult and grievous for the church. And as you scan verses 2 through 5, you notice something. Something striking. Paul doesn't mention things that maybe we would expect him to mention. In Matthew 24, Jesus teaches us about the precursory signs which are going to increase in frequency and intensity as the last days progress. And you think of those signs. Earthquakes, natural disasters, wars and rumors of wars, famine, pestilences, pandemics. Those things will happen and are happening. But that's not what the Apostle focuses on here in verses 2 through 5. Rather, the heart of these perilous times, that which makes them so perilous, is people. The people that will more and more inhabit the last days. The people who inhabit these perilous times that punctuate the last days. Verses 2 through 5 give us a vivid description of man according to his sinful flesh, man living out of his unregenerated heart, man living out the desires of that sinful flesh, man as he is by nature, living in rejection and rebellion against the will of God. That is the peril, the greatest peril of the last days and the grievous seasons that punctuate those last days. So let's briefly go through these things, these characteristics of the men of the last days, you might say, that Paul speaks about in verses 2 through 5. Beginning at the start of verse 2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And there's a reason that this one comes first, because this is really the fountainhead out of which all of these other characteristics flow. This is what defines man in the last days. This is what defines the actions, the attitudes, the way of human life in perilous times. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. That means they seek Self, above all. They elevate self to the position of God. They enthrone themselves and therefore all that they say and do is directed to their own ends. Everything that follows in verses 2 through 5 really is a manifestation of self-love and self-worship. We've started a series on 1 Corinthians 13. And the verses that are coming... Give us a beautiful description of the attitudes and actions of true Christian love. What we have here in 2 Timothy 3 is a vivid description of the attitudes and actions of counterfeit love. Of self-love. Really, 2 Timothy 3 sets before us the complete opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, we see what true love is. Here we see 
the self-love that boils and bubbles up from man's fallen nature. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. That is self-centered rather than other-centered. Self-seeking rather than self-giving. Pursuing one's own ends and advantage at the expense of others rather than pursuing the good of another person even at one's own expense. That's loving self. Men shall be lovers of self. Flowing out of that, the Apostle Paul sets before us various manifestations of self-love. Covetous is the next one. and The idea of this word is a lover of money. That's a literal render, rendering. A silver lover or a lover of money. It describes a mammon worshiper. One who tries to fill himself with earthly goods. And the purpose of his life is the acquisition and enjoyment of such earthly goods. That's going to characterize the last days. And particularly the perilous times that punctuate the last days. Boasters, the apostle says. The self-lover is a self-promoter. He advances himself over others. His eye is upon gaining the praise of men. Proud. The self-lover, because he loves himself, is haughty. He lifts himself up over others and despises, has contempt for others. Blasphemers. And here the word blasphemers in, in the text doesn't refer merely to Those who speak highly irreverently of God. Though that's part of it. But it also refers to those who speak injuriously about or to fellow men. The self-lover is a railer who uses his words for the promotion of self and for the destruction of others. And by cutting others low with his words, he props himself up. Disobedient to parents. And by implication, Lawful authority. Self-lovers will suffer no rules to be imposed upon them by others. Unthankful. The self-lover sees himself as indebted to nobody, but sees everybody as indebted to him. And so he is a man who will not be thankful for what he has, but will be demanding. Ungrateful. Unholy, the apostle goes on. And here, holiness refers to purity. And the unholy is the one who despises purity. Who has no respect for things that are sacred and pure. The self-lover lifts himself up over all and makes himself the center of the world. There is nothing too sacred for him to respect. Because in his mind, everything is there for him. Everything exists for him to exploit for his own advantage. Without natural affection. Natural affection here refers to the the natural bond that exists between family, parent and child. The self-lover is so self-seeking that he even destroys or rejects these natural attachments. Family love has little meaning to him if it stands in the way of the realization of his own desires. He's willing even to hate and destroy his own flesh and blood. And do we not see that in our day and age? The abortion industry is a prominent manifestation of this lack of natural affection. Truce breakers. The lover of self will be a word breaker. He doesn't keep his word. And he's not a peacemaker either. 
He seeks the destruction of his neighbor whenever his neighbor gets in his way. False accusers. Once again, emphasizing how men will use their words to tear down incontinent, without self-control, without self-mastery. The self-lover boasts of his freedom, yet he is a slave to his own passions. Fierce, Savage, without human sensitivity or empathy. Despisers of those that are good. Is that not the day and age in which we live? When that which is good, that which is wholesome, is mocked, is ridiculed, is despised to such an extent that men don't want to be associated, are embarrassed to be associated with that which is good. Traitors. The self-lover is so self-centered he will betray even his closest friend if it suits him. Heady. There the apostle is referring to one who plunges himself headlong without any thought. He's moved by passion. Not by reason or not by God's revelation, but the desires of his own heart. He is impulsive in seeking what he wants. High-minded, swollen, inflated with a sense of one's own importance. And now the bookend at the end of of verse 4. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And that brings us back to where we started. The self-lover seeks himself and therefore he is a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. And the idea is that he has no love of God in his heart. His God is himself. That's. The spirit of the age, which prevails in the last days. And that's the spirit of the age, which marks the perilous times which punctuate those last days. Really, you can think about these perilous times as intense manifestations of this sort of self-love. In addition to this, the apostle warns Timothy in verses 6 and 9 about the reality Of deceitful and seductive false teachers. And he describes what seems to be a particular circumstance that had occurred in his own day. Where there were these wicked men of this sort, verse 6 says, pointing back to verses 2 and 5. Men who used religion to promote themselves. Who used religion in order to obtain their own advantage. These men went out seeking to find a following, seeking to gather people to themselves. And these particular false teachers preyed upon various women who were connected with the church in that time. Text here isn't making a slight toward the female sex. The text should not be interpreted as if women rather than men are more susceptible to false teachers. The apostle here is merely describing a historical circumstance that there was at his time and is also making a point that false teachers often try to target vulnerable persons in order to gather a following around themselves. And these religious charlatans will present themselves as having 
pure gold to share with those who will but follow them. They will present themselves with charisma. They will pretend to be bringing enlightening truth. They will prey upon the vulnerable in order to gather a following around themselves. And we see that in our day and age, both outside the church and inside the church, when there is such a marketplace of false doctrine and false ideas in which charismatic leaders gather a following around themselves, following which they exploit for their own advantage. We are to be warned against that as well in the last days. But now to finish up the Apostles' description of these perilous times, let's note verse 5. Having a form of godliness, here the Apostle is pointing back to these people he has described in verses 2 through 4, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. A form of godliness. Here the apostle gives us a very insightful description of the hypocrite within the church. Form of godliness is an an appearance of piety. The text here is describing someone who puts on all of the clothes of Christianity and puts them on very well so that he makes himself to appear as a pious Christian. He has the form of godliness. He says the right things. He does the things you would expect from a good Christian outwardly, but it's just a form. It's just a shell. He denies the power thereof. That is, at heart, he is resolutely opposed to the truth of the gospel. He is resolutely opposed to the power of the Spirit. He does not live a sanctified life, but beneath this veneer, this external facade, he cherishes a love of self and a service of sin. There is a denial of the power thereof. There is an absence of the sanctifying work of the Spirit. There is an absence of true, living, fruit-bearing faith. He puts on appearances. And that brings us to see this very important point. That though this text directs our attention to the perils that array themselves against the church from the outside. There is, you might say, an even greater threat of perils emerging within the visible church. The people that are described here in verses 2 through 4 are those that that Paul describes as having a form of godliness. He's not first of all focusing on the wicked world out there, but he is describing false brethren within the church. He is describing the anti-Christian spirit which so easily takes hold in the church. We must beware of perils not only out there, but perils from inside. And from all of these perils and perilous persons, the Apostle exhorts, from such turn away. Often, more perilous to the church, more perilous than the fragrantly worldly, 
more perilous are the outwardly godly who insinuate themselves into the church and have a leavening influence upon the church. That gives us a picture. That gives us a picture of the last days and the perilous times that punctuate the last days. Let's now turn to consider what what our calling is in light of Paul's warning that perilous times shall come. There's an urgency to this passage. Perilous times shall come. Note the certainty of it. It's not an if or a maybe. But they shall come and they shall keep on coming. And as we progress farther towards the day of Christ's second coming, there is going to be an increasing regularity of these perilous times in which the church is called to live and stand fast and stay faithful. That's our calling in some. Our calling is to stay Faithful to stand firm, to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to hold fast to that apostolic deposit given to the church, and to hold on to it no matter how perilous the times become, to live it out no matter how perilous a gospel shaped life becomes in a world that despises the good. Staying faithful. Now when we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, we find some pointers. We find exhortations that the Apostle gives to Timothy which help us make this calling to stay faithful in perilous times more concrete. So there's three main lines of application now that I want to bring us down and apply it especially to our lives as Christian families who are called to live in perilous times. First line of application we can find in the very first words of of verse 1. This know also. You mustn't skip over those words. They start the chapter on purpose. There's Paul's exhortation to Timothy and his exhortation to the New Testament church. This, no. And the idea here is not that we merely become intellectually acquainted with the teachings of this chapter so that we store this information in our minds as a bunch of interesting facts about the days in which we live. But the Apostle Paul is saying, Know this. Take stock of this reality. Realize that this is a pressing reality, that you are going to experience this. Recognize that there is a response that this reality demands. These are not facts merely to be stored in the mind, but they are facts which are to guide us In the way we live in this world. The way we raise our families. The way we go to work. The way we live in every sphere of life. 
It's a calling to be aware. To be on our guard. To be purposely preparing ourselves for these perilous seasons which punctuate the last days. Texts such as this are a gift of God. To help us be ready for what will come. What already has come. What we are facing here and now. Imagine if someone credible, someone you trusted came to you and said, there's going to be a second great depression. It's only a year or so away. And this Great Depression is going to be far worse than the Great Depression you learned about in history. The Great Depression of the 1930s. What would we do in response? We would do more than say, oh, that's an interesting fact. I'll, I'll remember that. No, that, that knowledge, that awareness would prompt us to a diligent response. Making preparations. For that coming depression. So that we can bring our families safely through it. So that we're prepared to face the hardships that will come. A text like this is a gift of God for warning us. Of what we will and do face. As Christians and as Christian families. What do we do with that knowledge? Does that knowledge inform and shape and guide the way we live, the priorities that we set, how we teach and instruct our children, and so much more? This know also. It's a text that calls us To mature Christian discernment and watchfulness. It calls us to the exercise of faith. Faith which looks at everything in the light of God's word. And makes biblical judgments about all things. The Christian is called to be honing this life skill of biblically informed discernment. So that he looks at the world. He looks at all things. He looks at the life of the church with that biblical discernment. He tries the spirits with the standard of God's word. He's watchful. This watchfulness, this calling to mature discernment, to awareness and preparation, isn't a call to world flight. That's always a tempting response that the church faces in the last days and when perilous times come. Fleeing from the world, hunkering down, insulating ourselves as much as possible so that we have as little contact with the outside world as possible, so that we participate as little as possible. That's the monastic option or the Amish option, but it never works. The reality is that world flight often has the opposite effect of making us more vulnerable because it dulls our discernment. 
It can replace discernment with an intricate set of outward rules. A form of godliness does not protect the church against the perils of the last days. A multitude of rules that are merely outwardly conformed to does not give us a bulwark against worldliness. Not world flight, but living in the world, but not being of the world. And not being of the world means exercising that biblically informed, gospel-shaped discernment. Trying the spirits. Being a thoughtful people who ponder our ways. We have seasons of self-examination before the Lord's Supper. Which is advantageous, which is a good practice. We are to examine ourselves particularly in view to coming to the Lord's table. But self-examination is not something that is to be confined to the week before the Lord's Supper. Self-examination, reflecting, watchfulness over ourselves, over our families. That's the Christian way of life. This know also, the Apostle says. Watch. Be discerning. When we're watchful and when we're discerning, we see some of the dangers that we face, that our Christian families face today, do we not? There's the peril of the creeping inroads of self-love and the pleasure madness that's everywhere in our society. The bookend descriptions that Paul gives of the men who inhabit the perilous times of the last days. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Isn't that our world? Isn't that our society? It goes by all kinds of other names. It goes by the name of personal liberty. It goes by the name of personal autonomy. But in our society, the supreme good is me being able to do what I want, when I want, how I want And everybody better accept and affirm me in it. But that's not just out there. That's in here. That's in me. That's my sinful nature. And our society is such a powerful touch point there. By nature, we want to run in the same excess of riot that characterizes the world. Watchfulness. Discernment. See that creeping self-love for what it is. Look at Paul's description of the men who characterize the last days. We can see ourselves reflected there, can we not? If we're honest, we see those same impulses in us. Let that lead us to the cross of Christ. To be earnest in prayer and seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to mortify this old man. To walk in newness of life. And to make not self-love and the pleasure madness of our day and age. That which sits on the throne in our families, in our homes. But the love of God. The love of Christ. The blessed Life that his gospel calls us to. 
There's the peril of earthly mindedness. It's a peril that we face big time in our day and age. This peril of earthly mindedness isn't merely the the crass love of money that prizes earthly things above all. Though the prosperity of our day and age makes that a real snare. But earthly mindedness can so easily crop up among us in other more subtle ways. When the preoccupation with earthly pursuits, earthly pursuits which are not wrong in themselves, rise to such a level of importance that they begin to displace or push the things of God, the things of His kingdom, the things of His church, push those things into a subordinate position. Or preoccupation with earthly things that not only leads to an undervaluing of the things of the kingdom and the things of God's covenant, but a preoccupation with earthly things that leads to a sleepiness and lack of watchfulness when our eyes are glued to the stuff of this world and to the good things of this world, to living out the American dream, when that's where our attention is fixated, we grow spiritually sleepy. And when we get so used to prosperity, we stop expecting what this text tells us is going to happen and indeed is happening. Perilous times. Prosperity so easily blinds us to the peril we face. And so once again, the Apostle's exhortation comes to us and it's such an important one. Know this. Recognize the reality of things. Recognize the true nature of the days in which we live. The days in which we are raising our families. And let that knowledge lead to watchfulness and biblically informed discernment. Trying the spirits. Teaching our children to do the same. Another danger Plain old busyness. Is that not a struggle with which we deal with? One that sometimes seems unavoidable. Plain old busyness. That can leave us without the time or the energy for the pursuits and disciplines of a healthy spiritual life. The pursuits and disciplines with which stimulate growth in grace. Which stimulate maturity in faith. Which inform that spiritual discernment and watchfulness. Spiritual disciplines which exercise the soul unto godliness and fruitfulness. Think of Jesus' parable of the the Great Supper in Luke 14. And those guests who, they, they had too many things to do. They had bought a team of oxen and they had to try out that team of oxen in the field that they had. They were simply too busy to come to the Lord's banquet. That's another danger of earthly mindedness. Know this. Be on guard, says the Apostle. Be on guard against all of these subtle inroads that drain our spiritual energy, you might say, and turn our eyes away from what's truly important. Turn our eyes away from the reality of things. Focus them elsewhere. But there's perils that arise within the church. 
Go back to verse 5. Be aware of that. Verse 5. Take seriously the reality of perils within the church. The reality that there are unconverted, unbelieving men within the church. Who put on a form of godliness. We must beware of that leavening influence and not be surprised when it does arise. Exercise discernment even within the church. But now a second avenue of application for us. We stay faithful in perilous times by continuing in the things that we have been taught. That's verse 14. Verse 14, the apostle exhorts Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And then the verses which follow, verses 15, 16, and 17, unpack those things that Timothy has learned, the things of the scripture. And verses 10 and 11 also set before us the things that have been learned. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Here, Paul contrasts Timothy with the men that he described in verses 2-9. through nine. And he commends Timothy for faithfully following Following and standing firm in the apostolic teaching which he received. In verse 10. Thou hast fully known. And a better translation there is. Thou hast followed closely. Thou hast adhered diligently. To my doctrine. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Manner of life. The Godly life that flows from that gospel. Purpose. Paul's purpose of preaching the gospel to the nations for the salvation of God's elect. Faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Even following Paul into the persecutions that the church endures. Staying faithful in perilous times means holding fast. To the doctrine of the gospel. And staying faithful in perilous times means living out that doctrine of the gospel. Intentionally. Purposely. Is that a priority in our lives? Is that a priority for our families? Ever deepening. Understanding of Christ and his gospel. Here that form of godliness comes back and can be a real danger for Christian homes. Now I'm not saying that everyone who struggles with this is a hypocrite, not at all. But that this is a real struggle for genuine believers. That the practice of our faith. The practice of our religion. 
can become an outward form. Going through the motions, saying the right words, being in the right place at the right time, doing all of those things which are important, let them not be minimized, but without the heart being invested in them. That's a danger for the church in the last days, which we must be on our guard against. So easy it is to open up the scriptures because that's what we do. And we read the scriptures, we read a passage of scripture, we pray as a family, we close the Bible and we're done. Regardless of whether anyone understood the reading or not, move on. Are we intentional about growing more and more in our understanding and our love for the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that this pursuit, this pursuit of a deepened understanding of the gospel, shapes our home lives? Are we satisfied with a religion of externals? Or is our home life devoted to the pursuit of genuine godliness? Godliness in substance. Not just the form. Cultivating those real fruits of the Spirit. That's what the text calls us to strive for. When it says continue, continue, remain, stay faithful in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of. And at the heart of it is the opposite of what's in the heart of the men described in verses 2 through 9. Not self-love, not pleasure love, but love of God. Loving the Lord in our homes. Loving the Lord in our marriage. Loving God in our parenting. Loving God in the raising of our children. Loving God as we go to work. Loving God. Love for God fortifies the heart against the love of self and the love of pleasure. Love of God sets the heart aflame with that pure fire that guards against the fiery darts of the devil. Let us heed that call. Continue in the things which thou hast learned. Well, finally, we conclude briefly with the question, how? And here the question is, by what means do we stand fast in perilous times? What tools do we have as Christians and as Christian families to stay faithful? And the answer is what the Apostle points to us in the last verses of the text. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Apostle points Timothy and us back to the Scriptures. The Word of God. That's our tool. That's the means. That's the power God has given. 
We see that when we see what Scripture is. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally every Scripture and the whole of Scripture. Every part of it is God-breathed. That word inspired is God-breathed. And what a powerful idea that is. The Bible came out of God's mouth. Every word that we find in the Bible is a word That was uttered by God himself. Carried by the breath of God. Which is the spirit of the Lord. And thus it's powerful. Creation. God created. He made all things by the word of his power. And by the scriptures. God powerfully strengthens. Equips his people. To stay faithful. In perilous times. And that's what the apostle points out here. Scripture is profitable, that is, it's useful, it's beneficial for doctrine, for teaching, for instructing us in the truth of the gospel, for reproof, for turning from sin, for correction, for restoring those who have walked in sin, for instruction in righteousness, for education in godliness. Scripture is sufficient for all of these things that the man of God may be perfect. There the word perfect doesn't mean morally perfect. We never reach moral perfection on this side of glory. But it means someone who is fully equipped, fully outfitted for a task at hand. And the task at hand is the Christian life. The life of faith and godliness in the midst of these last days. In the midst of these perilous times. The scriptures make the man of God thoroughly equipped Truly furnished for life good works. The scripture is our God-given all-sufficient tool for staying faithful and standing strong in perilous times. It is suitable for our needs. And so the application that comes to us is one that we've heard so many times. Perhaps it's tempting to say, yeah, I know that. I hear it all the time. But hear it again. Take it to heart. And see in light of this passage how important it is. Let us be a people of the book. A people who drink deeply from the wells of Holy Scripture. A people who feast daily upon the Word of God without which we cannot live The word of God at the center of which is Jesus Christ himself. The bread of life who feeds and nourishes our souls unto everlasting life. Let us do that individually but as families. As families now. The word of God outfits us, equips us to stand strong and stay faithful. Perilous times. So may our homes. May our homes be. Homes that are built. Upon this rock. Of the word of Christ. When they are. No matter how. Mighty the winds and the waves are. Which beat against them. They shall stand firm. May the Lord bless this season of family visitation. Use it for our strengthening. For our growth as a spiritual family. To stay faithful.
perilous times. Amen. Faithful God and Father, we thank Thee for this passage of Scripture. One that sets before us warnings. One that bids us to ponder the days in which we live. And to be on our guard against the perils that we face. One that also gives us great encouragement. Great encouragement that we have Thee as our God. Our protector. And the God who has given us the Holy Scriptures which Thou dost apply to us by Thy Spirit. So that we are thoroughly furnished unto all good works and a life of faithfulness unto Thee. Bless this word to our hearts. Use it also to give us a profitable season of family visitation. This we ask in Jesus' name alone. Amen.